Welcome to Storytelling Animals, an environmental podcast where we use books to make sense of the ecological crisis. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, uh, and today I won't really be talking about books. Um, it's a, I guess, slightly shorter episode than usual because I'm moving to Michigan, uh, and I spent the last few days traveling from Los Angeles to Detroit. And the reason it took a few days rather than a few hours is that I took an Amtrak train instead of flying. When I mention this, uh, a lot of people ask why uh, and look at me like I'm a little bonkers for spending two nights on a train when airplanes exist. Um, And the problems with airplanes have come up in a couple interviews I've done for this podcast, including one that will come out later this month. So I thought I'd do something of an explainer episode on why I do this, uh, why I take the train or the bus sometimes instead of a plane. Um, with special attention to sort of the present and future climate implications of long-distance transportation. It's not comprehensive, uh, but it'll sort of give you an intro to the issue, I think. Um, So if you like this episode, please consider subscribing to my free weekly newsletter. I'll share the latest podcast episodes, updates on the Storytelling Animals Book Club, and a link to the best article I read each week. Um, So I hope you sign up for that, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Speaking of the book club, it's not too late to join our next meeting, which is May 31st at 8.30 Eastern, to discuss the fifth season by N.K. Jemisin. Uh, And then the next two meetings after that are June 28th, Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake, and July 26th, The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. By the way, if you missed my interview last week with Kim Stanley Robinson, please be sure to check that out. If you wish to join one of these book club meetings, uh, you can subscribe to my uh, weekly newsletter and go to one as a free trial of the book club. Um, if you wish to join two, two or more of these meetings uh, or more meetings in the future, please uh, support this podcast on Patreon uh, at the Lorax tier or higher, patreon.com slash storytelling pod. Thanks so much to those who already do uh, participate in the book club um, and those who do support this podcast on Patreon. And without further ado, here we go. in Southern California, and airplane travel was not a huge part of my life. Maybe on average, every other year or so, my family would fly for a vacation or to visit family, but I doubt much more than that. I started flying a lot more, however, when I went to college in Princeton, New Jersey. That year, I flew back and forth between California and New Jersey maybe five times or so, um, and while that number went down over my years in college, I was still making multiple long cross-country flights a year. I don't remember exactly when I became concerned about this. It definitely wasn't right at the beginning, but I started thinking about it at least by my junior year. Uh, This would have been spring of 2014, and I was taking a class called Climate Science and Communications. One of the articles we read was by meteorologist and climate journalist Eric Holthaus, explaining why he had decided to stop flying uh, because of the high carbon emissions, Um, and he talks in the article about a 28-hour bus trip he took. Um, to some conference or something. And I remember when we discussed this article in class, some people said, you know, well, that sounds a little extreme. I think someone said, oh, I could never do that. Um, Or even that the article came across as somewhat preachy or conceited or holier than thou. Um, But I remember thinking, well, in this class, we're doing all this reading that suggests the climate problem is extremely serious and dangerous and going to be deadly. And if we actually believe all of that, then 
does taking an overnight bus really sound too extreme? Um, it feels a bit early to declare what we will and won't be willing to do uh, to respond to such an absolute catastrophe. It's worth pointing out now, before maybe you accuse me of being holier than thou, um, that I have not managed to give up flight entirely um, at that point. I didn't really give it up at all, um, and I understand that there are compelling reasons that people still fly. Uh, maybe your job forces you to do it, maybe something else. Um, and that the alternatives, uh, rail and bus, have their difficulties that I will discuss later. But at that point in my life, junior year of college, I was increasingly willing to take action around climate change. I was just becoming involved in activism against the Keystone XL pipeline, um, and earlier in college I had gone vegetarian and then vegan, uh, largely out of ethical concern for other animals, but definitely climate and environmental concerns played a big role in that as well. So I remember sitting there in class thinking that maybe Eric Holthaus had a point. Sometime around then, um, I'm not sure if it was before or after, or if it was a direct result of reading that article, but I did one of those online carbon footprint calculators. I was vegan, as I mentioned, and I did not have a car with me at Princeton, um, but it turned out that I still had a pretty high carbon footprint, and the bulk of those emissions came from all those cross-country flights I was doing. Um, I know some of you might object that Obsessing over one's personal carbon footprint is overrated. We need structural change, not just individual lifestyle changes. And you're absolutely right, um, but I still think it's important to look at our personal habits uh, for reasons I will discuss later in the podcast. But before I do that, uh, now is maybe a good time to get into aviation emissions. So each individual flight releases a lot of carbon dioxide, um, which you probably know is one of the main gases that contributes to climate change. Um, so the round-trip flight from Los Angeles to Detroit uh, would have released 447 kilograms of carbon dioxide. That might not mean much to you, uh, but for perspective, there are 37 countries where the average per capita CO2 emissions globally are less than that amount. So in a single trip to and from Detroit from LA, I would have released more CO2, carbon dioxide, than millions and millions of people do every year in their entire year. Um, I've seen calculations too, for instance, that an international flight can emit more than heating a home for a year. Um, but these numbers are about isolated trips. Let's look at the big picture. Aviation accounts globally for 2.5% of carbon dioxide emissions, um, but that's not the whole story. In fact, about half of the total climate impact of aviation comes from other emissions. So there are other greenhouse gases, um, nitrous oxides, water vapor, that sort of play a similar role in the atmosphere. Um, and then contrails released by planes also um, have a net warming effect uh, at those altitudes. And, you know, these effects don't necessarily last as long in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide does. Um, but still accounting for these other effects, aviation accounts for about 3.5% of total uh, impact on global warming worldwide. Um, most of this, according to one study, uh, is like 71% comes from commercial passenger flights. Um, the rest is from commercial freight, uh, the military, and then the final 4% from private airplanes. So the United States on the surface is a similar story. Um, transportation is 29% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, according to the EPA. Um, aircraft make up 10% of those emissions. So depending on rounding, that'd be about 2.9% of U.S. greenhouse gases come from aviation. 
But in other ways, it's an entirely different story from the rest of the world. Um, that's skewed by the fact that the rest of our emissions are also high, but the United States emits more greenhouse gas from aviation than the next 10 countries combined. Um, partly this is because we are such a large country, both geographically and in terms of population, but that doesn't explain all of it. Uh, for instance, U.S. aviation emissions are about eight times higher than China's, which is even bigger and with more people. Um, China, by the way, does have fairly extensive rail network at this point, definitely relevant. So North America as a whole, and the U.S. drives a lot of the flights in North America, um, has the highest per capita emissions from aviation of any region in the world by far. So North American flight emissions per capita for commercial passenger flights are more than twice as high as per capita emissions in Europe. They're more than nine times as high as per capita emissions in Asia-Pacific, and 47 times higher than per capita emissions in Africa. So we're flying way, way more than anyone else. Um, the other scary part of this is that the industry is growing and is projected to keep growing into the future. Um, North America is actually growing more slowly than everywhere else, but it's still growing. Um, Asia-Pacific is the fastest-growing region, and still, even by 2050, uh, per capita flying emissions in North America are expected to remain more than four times higher than those in Asia-Pacific. Um, so even if other uh, regions are growing faster, they're still not catching up because we're growing too. By the way, uh, a lot of these stats are coming from a really useful 2020 paper on the global scale distribution and growth of aviation and the implications for climate change. Um, and I will link that in the episode description. So anyway, this all becomes even more glaring when you consider that in any given year, almost 90% of the global population does not fly. Even in the United States, more than half of adults did not fly in 2018. Just 12% of Americans who fly six or more times per year, um, probably many of them business travelers, uh, account for more than two-thirds of U.S. flights. Um, globally, that paper says about 1% of people uh, in the world account for roughly half of all aviation emissions. So I don't think I ever flew six times a year, uh, but I think I reached four or five a couple times round-trip flights, and most of those were pretty long distance. Um, my family was in California and I was in New Jersey. Uh, what could I have done differently? So somewhere along the way in college, I came across a report called Getting There Greener, which was put together by the Union of Concerned Scientists in 2008. Um, so some of the numbers are a little outdated, but still a useful way to compare uh, different forms of long-distance travel. There were a few major takeaways. First, that uh, from a carbon dioxide perspective, buses are best by far. Um, although they are powered by diesel, uh, currently they have the least amount of carbon dioxide emissions per mile traveled per passenger. Um, so they're more efficient than trains, planes, or cars, partly because you know, they pack you so densely, um, and partly because a bus engine doesn't have to launch a large vehicle into the sky. So on that note, I learned that for planes, takeoff and landing release disproportionate uh, carbon dioxide. So direct flights, where you only have to take off once, are a lot more efficient than uh, routes with layovers, um, where you have to take off and land multiple times. Um, so I did start consciously trying to avoid layovers after that. What was surprising to me is that over about 750 miles or so, so that's San Francisco to Seattle, um, a direct flight 
could even outperform Amtrak trains in when it comes to carbon dioxide. Uh, with the exception of uh, certain routes on, in the Northeast, most Amtrak trains in the U.S. run on diesel. Um, so in more recent analysis with updated numbers, um, it looks like Amtrak's numbers have gotten a little more efficient. Uh, it said, it was a 2020 paper I saw that said planes become more efficient at around 1,000 miles, not 750, though it depends on the type of plane and whatever the exact number is. The takeaway is roughly the same, which is past a certain amount in the you know 750 to 1,000 mile range, uh, planes emit less carbon dioxide than trains do. Uh, so you may be wondering, why did I take a 2,000 plus mile train ride, uh, 2,200 miles from LA to Detroit on the Gray on the Amtrak, um, if the plane or the bus would have been more efficient? So there are a few different answers to that question, um, but I'll start with the one that I didn't actually even think about until I was already on the train. Um, well, if I'm being 100% honest, uh, the main answer to that question is that I read the report many years ago, and for some reason I thought the break-even point was 1,500 miles instead of 750 miles, so it didn't seem like that big a difference. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the the real answer that I didn't even think of till I was on the train is that, as I mentioned earlier, more than half of the warming impact of planes comes from non-carbon dioxide emissions. So even if planes emit slightly less carbon dioxide over long distances, they're still considerably worse for the climate overall. So according to the Union of Concerned Scientists report, Getting Their Greener, even at 2,500 miles, which is the equivalent of Phoenix to New York City, um, trains only emit 16% more carbon dioxide than planes do. But if CO2 is only roughly half of a plane's impact, then really it's not even close. Um, very roughly doing sort of a back-of-the-envelope calculation. Don't cite this in an academic paper or anything. Um, but if you basically double the plane's impact, um, that would mean that a train at 2,500 miles only has about 60% of the climate impact of the nonstop plane. Um, so that sounds good for trains. And it's worth pointing out, too, that uh, these numbers are calculated based on typical capacity, the typical plane is about 80% full, whereas um, even at its pre-pandemic peak, the typical Amtrak train was only just over half full. So a full train would be more efficient than a full plane, even if you only counted carbon dioxide. Um, it's just that the trains currently have to lug along a lot of empty seats. I don't actually know uh, how you know plausible it is to fill up Amtrak or if there's just going to be some routes where the demand isn't there. Um, but my uninformed guess anyway is that as more and more people started to, to uh, take train rides and replace car rides and flights, um, Amtrak would then uh, get even more efficient as some of those uh, seats filled up. Um, certainly on my recent trip from um, L.A. to Detroit, it seemed like most of the time most of the seats were full. So all this sounds good for trains. Um, as someone who flew a lot, I was one of maybe the 20%-ish of people in the country who flew the most. Um, that would make me, you know, part of a tiny minority on a global scale. I had one of the highest carbon footprints on Earth. Um, even if you think the average person's carbon footprint doesn't matter much, um, I would say that mine was unsustainable. Um, you know, you may have heard uh, there's an Oxfam report 
that the top uh, 10% of global earners uh, account for more than half of, of lifestyle-related carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, the top 1% account for like 14% of lifestyle emissions. And, um, you know, I think that is a good argument that people in lower uh, income brackets shouldn't be super worried about um, counting their carbon emissions. But uh, it's important to remember on the global scale, the top 10% of uh, income earners is a net income of more than $38,000. Even the top 1% is a net income of more than $109,000. Even if (laughs) my income wasn't there, uh, definitely by flying a lot, I was probably living uh, a lifestyle, having a carbon footprint uh, that was not horribly different from um, some of those high emitters. Um, in fact, uh, another report showed that transportation, um, including but not limited to aviation, is a big driver of how the rich get such high um, carbon footprints. So yeah, I guess every little bit helps. I had a much higher than average carbon footprint on a global scale, uh, and I wanted to reduce it. Um one way to do that was Amtrak. I think another thing to keep in mind that I was aware of is I was uh, modeling a way of life that, if adopted by everyone, um, would have been catastrophic, unsustainable. In fact, if everyone in the world took one um, long-haul round-trip flight a year, about 2,500 miles or more, um, aviation as an industry would emit more than any country but China. For context, uh, China emits about 27% of the world's carbon dioxide. Um, The United States is second at about 11%. Um, So aviation would slot into kind of like that 20% of global emissions range if everyone flew uh, even one long-haul flight a year. If everyone flew like I was flying in uh, college, we would just blow through our 1.5 degrees Celsius goal. Um... Probably significantly so. Christian Science Monitor uh, recently did an article about people who have given up flying, um, and they interviewed someone named Jack Hansen who uh, said something that was very resonant with me. He said, uh, I want to live in a way where I know that if everyone on Earth was living like me, the world would be okay. That seems like an admirable goal. Um, You know, I don't want to live a way of life where... I couldn't in good conscience tell the rest of the world that they should be able to fly a lot every year. Um, So why is it okay for me to do it? Okay, but at this stage, um, probably even if everyone in the world took a diesel-powered Amtrak train as much as I do, that also wouldn't be very sustainable, right? Um, If all this, the above sounds good for trains versus planes, uh, buses versus trains are even better. Um, At a 2,500-mile trip, According to that 2008 uh, Union of Concerned Scientists report, um, a bus would have only 39% the carbon dioxide emissions of a train. Uh, So, yeah, why didn't I take a bus? Um, In my defense, I have before. Uh, Last year, I took a Greyhound from New York to Los Angeles. Uh, I've taken the bus between Chicago and Los Angeles a few times when I lived in Chicago. Um, Probably I've taken more long bus rides than I have train rides in my life. Uh, But sometimes, uh, including my most recent trip, I do take the train. And to explain why, um, I need to get into the side of things that is not strictly about, you know, our individual carbon footprint. 
So I have enjoyed my long bus rides. Um, I'm a Greyhound apologist. I mentioned, uh, you know, having good Greyhound experiences last night with some friends and everyone um, got on me. Uh, they started listing all their horror stories with Greyhound. Um, I admit it didn't sound great. And I admit I have had, you know, some some bad delays or, or not ideal Greyhound experiences too. Um, but I don't mind it. I think it's nice. Uh, that said, for a long overnight trip, um, like from LA to Detroit, a train is simply so much nicer. Um, in fact, I think it's way nicer than a plane as well. You have way more leg room. The seat reclines way back at night. You can get up and wander around whenever. Uh, there's a lounge car with a cafe. It's often very scenic. Um, I'd been busy the last couple weeks uh, with work and preparing for the move, um, and I found myself in that time looking forward to the train ride in its own right, um, looking forward to having a couple days to relax, get off the computer, read books, listen to podcasts. Um, on this latest train trip, I finished reading uh, The Fifth Season, the fantasy novel by N.K. Jemisin, um, and as a reminder, that is our uh, Storytelling Animals Book Club book. Uh, we'll be discussing that May 31st. You can sign up for my weekly email list and or just read the episode description uh, for more information about that. Um, but the point I'm trying to make here is that it didn't feel like I was making some noble sacrifice for the climate or something. I was actively looking forward to this train ride, uh, certainly more so than I would for a flight. I think this is an important political point because most likely we will be asking people to make a lot of lifestyle adjustments to respond to climate change. Uh, this is going to be harder if it feels like a sacrifice, if people think we're asking them to give stuff up that they like. Um, this is actually the subject of what is most likely going to be my next episode, an interview with the philosopher Kate Soper, um, which is about how, in a lot of ways, post-carbon living um, can actually be kind of nice. We aren't just asking people to give something up, uh, we're asking people to start doing something else that can be fun. What's more, uh, Amtrak let me bring a backpack and a bag of snacks and check two 50-pound bags for no extra charge and bring my bike the whole way for only 30 bucks. Um, if I'd had extra hands, I could have brought two additional carry-on suitcases for no charge either. Um, while the base charge is uh, more expensive, at least than a, a cheap airline like Spirit, um, with all those bags and my bike and stuff, it was definitely the cheapest option to move across the country. That's cheaper even than a Greyhound would have been, uh, too. So I asked the guy next to me on the train if he had considered buses or planes, um, and he said no, he he doesn't like Greyhound. Uh, he takes the trip from L.A. to Chicago all the time and takes the train. He's flown many times before, um, but he doesn't like takeoff, turbulence, or landing. I heard another guy a few rows back explain to someone that he was afraid of heights or... Not afraid, he said, he, I just don't like heights. Um, and he doesn't like flying for this reason. Uh, another guy I heard say he appreciated not having to go through TSA and security and arrive two hours early to an airport. And it's true, uh, you know, if you, if you don't have to check in bags, you actually don't really need to show up early at all. And if you do, um, it's a relatively quick process. I won't pretend that my two nights in the train were the most comfortable and deepest sleeps in my life. Um, but fully reclined with the footrest up, they're not horrible. Um, and to be honest, it's something I've gotten used to. Uh, there's, of course, one other major downside uh, compared to air travel, which is just that it takes so much more time. Um, more than 48 hours from L.A. to Detroit, as opposed to, I don't know, four or five hours by plane. Um, and that's assuming 
they're running on time. Uh, so this is perhaps what friends and family get kind of the most incredulous about, uh, or it's, you know, think I'm going through some giant undertaking or something. Uh, and I think this is how I thought of it too. Maybe the first couple, uh, long bus or, or train trips I took, but at this point it just kind of feels normal. I, you know, it might sound like I'm lying to <laughs> get you to try it or something, but it's just probably the biggest mental adjustment I've made. One that I would have thought would be more difficult, but if I want to travel somewhere far away, um, just my gut response is to think about, okay, that'll take a while to get there, um, and I need to plan the logistics. Um, even though I still do fly here and there, uh, it almost feels like a cheat code in that way. For most of history, traveling 2,000 miles would take a long time. It's a long way. Um, and again, in this case, I was actually looking forward to a 48-hour train trip um, as a break, a chance to read and relax in a way that a plane would not have been. It's important to remember that not everyone has the time to take a break and read and relax for a couple days. Um, I suppose you could work remotely on the train, but Wi-Fi and data are not always reliable. Um, I have in the past, and eh, it sometimes works, mostly doesn't. Um, so climate justice in this sense probably means shorter working hours, longer paid vacation time, generally more flexibility around when and where people work. And given that a lot of frequent flyers do so for their job, um, probably in the future a lot of these trips just won't have to happen. Um, but does climate justice also mean that if you want to travel across the country, you're going to have to spend a couple nights and days in a train or a bus? This is something I want to write about more in the near future. Um, these kind of policy elements uh, are outside the scope of, of what I want this uh, episode to be, um, but people have a range of opinions, uh, and my own answer is, yeah, sometimes. Um, so when I first started writing the script for this podcast, I started getting deep into the weeds of what all the different decarbonization options are for aviation and for trains and buses. I quickly realized this could be a whole episode or series of episodes on its own um, and was perhaps getting too far astray of the initial question I wanted to answer um, of why did I take the train instead of the plane. But the short version is um, there are a few different options for uh, low-carbon aviation, um, getting electric battery-powered planes to actually carry a full load of passengers still requires technological advances and even then is not expected ever to work for trips over a few hundred miles. Batteries just aren't powerful enough. Um, as for the other suggested technologies, there's biofuels, synthetic e-fuels, hydrogen-powered aviation. At least to me, none of them seem that promising. Um, producing biofuels is often environmentally destructive. Hydrogen aviation still faces major engineering hurdles and requires large amounts of electricity to produce the hydrogen. Synthetic fuels are expensive and require even a larger amount of electricity. Plus, even if they negate carbon dioxide emissions, none of these get rid of all the other climate impacts, um, the nitrous oxide and the contrails and such. Um, so even if hydrogen or e-fuels pan out, uh, they won't be 100% climate friendly, and they'll require a staggering amount of electricity. Um, you know, renewables are definitely way better than fossil fuels, but... We can't just keep building more wind, more solar um, indefinitely, you know? It requires, uh, it disrupts ecosystems, it can harm endangered species, disrupt migration patterns of animals, you know, you have to mine materials for them, they generate waste. Again, they're they're clean compared to fossil fuels, but they're not just 
you know, we can't just have infinite electricity. And even if we could, it would take a long time to build. Um, so even in the best case scenario for these alternate plane technologies, we're still going to want to, at the very least, significantly reduce demand for flights. Um, whereas currently the industry is projected to grow, so that's a problem. Um, so trains and buses currently run on diesel, uh, for the most part, um, in the U.S. anyway. And the alternatives typically proposed are to power them uh, with batteries, electricity, or um, hydrogen fuel cells technology. Uh, and neither of these are going to be easy to implement. There's engineering challenges and such. Uh, but they'd end up being more efficient than aviation alternatives. Um, and actually for rail, um, there's a technology that we already know works, which is just electric rail with overhead lines. Um, it's used widely in other countries. It's used in the north northeastern United States. Um, it would be very, very expensive to convert all of our rail lines to electric. Um, but I do think a serious point in its favor, uh, you know, compared to uh, some of these other options for both trains and planes and buses, is that uh, we already have the technology. We already know it works. Um, it's been done. We can do it. Uh, High-speed rail, of course, is also a possibility. Maybe one day getting to Detroit from L.A. will be more like 10, 12 hours instead of 50. But um, this is typically done by building entirely new tracks. So even if we started now, it may be a while before we have a nationally connected high-speed rail network. This is a rapid tour through complicated issues, and, you know, I'm not making a judgment call here, which are, which will or won't be the ones that um, come through. But I do think the major takeaway is uh, that we need to reduce flights. In fact, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, in their latest report on mitigating climate change, said that flying less is one of the best ways to reduce emissions and that uh, changes in demand like that are going to be a big part of uh, the solution. So given uh, the United States' disproportionate, disproportionate share in aviation emissions, it seems to me anyway that the United States in particular should reduce flights, and in particular people like me who were flying a lot. Um, if people in the United States still want to travel long distances, uh, the cleanest, least energy-intensive options in the future will almost certainly be trains and or buses, um, and because the fastest high-speed rail option would take a while to implement, we should accept that uh, at least some of these routes, at least for a while, will take a night or two, um, though rarely three, to get across the country. Okay, and I think this is the important part. This means within a decade or two, we want to build a culture, a society, where it's totally normal to choose a bus or a train instead of the plane, um, even for long-distance travel. Politicians aren't going to just legislate restrictions on flight um, unless there's public support. So we need to start building that culture, building that society, building that support now. And for me, part of building that culture means not only do I take the train, uh, but I should talk about it to help normalize that. Um, so here I am. In fact, uh, as I talked about in a previous episode... Um, with Rebecca Willis on deliberative democracy, uh, when people actually get a chance to learn about these issues and, you know, discuss them at length, hear from experts, ask questions, um, come up with their own solutions, uh, they are more open to not necessarily banning planes, but at least restrictions on flights, on frequent flying, um, on industry growth, uh, than they would be otherwise. So, 
I don't forget, I haven't forgotten my college classmate who thought that refusing to fly was extreme, uh, that Eric Holthouse was holier than thou. And in fact, uh, in many settings, I don't really talk too much about my uh, unusual travel habits because I don't want to implicitly make people feel guilty about flying or come off like I think I'm some sort of climate saint or something. Um, but uh, still, my college classmate was wrong, and I'm wrong, I think, for not talking about it too much. Uh, because we absolutely do need to talk about this stuff. That's how we're actually going to get things to change. Um, we need to question the idea that hurtling through the air in a small metal box, something that only became possible for de uh, a few decades ago, something that 80% of the planet has never done, uh, is we need to question the idea that that's the only acceptable way to travel. Um, we need to prepare people for the idea that our lives will change uh, in the decades to come. Uh, but also help people understand that some of those changes will be good. We do also need to understand the downsides. Um, my train was five hours late to Chicago, so I missed my transfer to Detroit. Um, on the bright side, they put me up in a hotel that night. Um, you know, watching the sunrise from the train is beautiful, but it's hard to sleep uh, much when the whole car is bright by 6 a.m. Uh, a reclined chair is nice, but it's not a bed. In fact, I wrote in Jacobin last year that people who don't want to sleep on the train um, should get a voucher for food and lodging and be able to rejoin another train the next day. Um, the government uh, should provide this. I think we should be incentivizing people to take the low-carbon option, um, not making it more difficult. There are other policies, of course, we could use to make all this easier. As I said, that's beyond the scope of this episode. Um, but yeah, we need to rein in air travel, make trains and buses more comfortable, more accessible, um, and lower carbon. You know, like I said, a world where everyone takes a diesel-powered train as much as I do um, also isn't super sustainable, but maybe a world where everyone takes uh, an electric train where the electricity is purely renewable um, actually is a lot more sustainable um, than this one, and certainly way more sustainable than one in which everyone flies. Um, I know not everyone has as much choice as I do right now, again. Uh, I work remotely and set my own hours, um, but yeah, I... For me, this is a choice I can make, so it's a choice I do make. I will say there uh, were also a surprising number of children and even a couple babies on my recent trip from L.A. to, to Detroit. Mostly they were Amish, um, and so don't really see planes as an option, I guess. Uh, but it did make me think that slower-paced travel might be easier on kids. My initial instinct was that, you know, being on a train with a baby would be impossible, but it wasn't so bad. I was right next to the baby, and they barely cried at night. Um, I think maybe they kind of liked sleeping on uh, their mother's lap. That said, I'm not a parent. I, I never raised a baby. I don't know your baby. It might be super hard. I don't want to make it sound easy just because I saw someone do it next to me. And one last uh, caveat. Um, the majority of uh, U.S. aviation emissions are domestic flights, um, but a not small portion is international flights. Obviously, I haven't addressed that. It's a different set of issues. Um, maybe that's a future episode. So, if you are someone who flies a few times a year, like I was, um, or even if you're someone who does not, I I would encourage you to try an Amtrak uh, or even a Greyhound, not necessarily because it will be a perfect experience, but because you might learn something uh, about what life is going to be like in 10, 20 years. Uh, you might learn something about what needs to change to make trains and buses more uh, accessible and desirable. Um, and also, you know, 
you'll reduce your carbon emissions by doing so. So you don't have to start with a two-night trip, although you certainly can if you want to. Um, bring a book and some snacks, download an audiobook or a podcast, um, and make sure to spend some time looking out the window at this beautiful land. Perhaps I'll see you there. Okay, that's all for this week. Uh, thanks for listening, and if you want me to be able to afford all these train rides, uh, please support this podcast on Patreon, patreon.com storytellingpod. Um, you'll also get early access to future episodes uh, and can join the book club and other perks if you so desire. All right, have a good day.